Your Father, indeed, you are a good, good Father. <laughs> we are blessed beyond measure because you sent your Son to die for us so that we could have forgiveness of sin and a restored relationship with you. And if that wasn't sufficient enough, you gave us your spirit to indwell those who have claimed your name as a great comforter, as a guide, as a protector. And if that's not sufficient, you are securing a place for us in your presence. We all get to live on Main Street <laughs> in your house. Father, what a day. As we look at the world around us, good is missing. A definition of good is often bizarre, doesn't make sense. But Father, you know, and you're in charge. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, we understand what good is. It's embodied in your Son, Jesus Christ. Guide us now as we go to the text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to try to remove this. I'd like to see the whites of your eyes. There we go. There we go. Colossians chapter 3, if you've, or excuse me, chapter 2, if you've just joined us, we're working through the, this epistle, this letter that Paul has written to a group of believers he's never met. Remember, where is Paul? He is in prison as he pens this epistle. And as you, read, you heard the text read, 2, 16 through 23, it's one of the most rather unique sections of the letter. It's difficult. In fact, Susan said, uh, all the best in preaching this text this morning. <laughs> It is problematic, and, and what is going on here? And so we're going to look at that, and as we do, uh, let me just kind of set the stage for you. There's nothing more frustrating than picking up a Lego set that's all disassembled, and you have no manual, and you got to put it back together, right? That will do me in. I need a manual. I need to know where these pieces go. And the problem is, at times when you step into a letter in the New Testament, if you don't know the background, you feel a little bit like the Lego set without the manual. You're going, okay, I, I'm not sure I fully understand what's transpiring here. The church at Colossae, we know, is being under attack from what these so-called false teachers. In other words, they're stating that Christ is not the end all, that, that there's other means to get to God, or that Christ is one of the cogs in the wheel. And, and that's what we're faced with here in this, I think this chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, is that we're seeing they're coming alongside these false teachers and saying, no, if, if you want a relationship with God, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I remember my uh, grandmother, she uh, used to clean houses when she was younger, and she was quite the neat freak. In fact, she's the only person I know that would dry clean her curtains twice a year. Uh, drove my grandfather nuts, but that's how it was. Right? She painted the basement floor at one point. Uh, and the, the best story about my grandmother, she's 97, and my dad's siblings, they all hired a housekeeper to come in once a week to clean. She fired her. We said, Grandma, why did you fire her? She goes, you can't mop a floor with a stick. You got to get on your hands and knees and do it, right? 
So at 97, she was back to mopping her own floors. And Grandma used to say, well, you know what the good book says, cleanliness is next to godliness. I had, didn't have the heart to tell Grandma, that's not in the good book, but okay. Uh, and, and we have these preconceived ideas, and the false teachers are coming alongside, you know, they're saying, you know, you, you got to do these things to earn God's love. It, it just isn't automatic. You know, God heals those who help themselves, or God helps those who help themselves. You've heard the line, and, and that, that's what's kind of being promoted at Colossae. And notice, uh, you've got, if you have the sermon notes, they're in front of you or on a chair if you want those. Uh, <clears throat> they're just something else to stuff in your Bible, or hopefully they're of some use, but... You'll see the first section here is defining true spiritual freedom, and the first section I see is, is laying out what are some false concepts of spiritual freedom. The first, I think Paul is highlighting, listen, he goes, it, it's not external. Notice, let's go to verse 16. It says, therefore, do not let anyone judge. And by the way, the grammatical construction tells us that it's already happening, They've already succumbed to this. The pressure of those who, who claim to be very spiritual are saying, oh, no, no, no. If you want to be godly, you got to do these things. And notice what they are these things. It says, with respect to food and drink. It's interesting. The, the law never talked about things that one should not drink. There's plenty of regulations about food. In fact, I had a little fun with the sermon title. It's The Joy of Eating Calamari. Because under the Old Testament law, there is no calamari. There's no shrimps, as they say in Israel. Everything's with an S. So there's no shrimps. There's, there's no shellfish. Um, and, of course, Peter saw the vision and understood, no, 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 under grace, all foods are permissible. But you had a group coming along, Paul, the apostles teaching and saying, no, we still need to adhere to the food. In fact, let us throw in drink as a stipulation, probably based on the Nazarite vow that strong drink was not to be permitted. And so you have this heresy that has percolated in among the believers. And really what we have is a form of legalism, don't we? Legalism is not the presence of rules. McDonald's has rules if you work there. Some more than others, but they have rules, right? Uh, it's, it's the attitude which surrounds the rules, isn't it? That's legalism. Because what the rule maker is saying here is, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're not as spiritual as we are. In fact, notice what else they argue. It's a matter of feast, new moons, and Sabbath days. <laughs> and you're going, what is all of that? Well, according to Jewish law, Special days are dedicated to God. The new moon is, is a festival that times was celebrated at the beginning of the month, right? And even today, if you're in Israel, the observance of the, uh, the holidays are very important. I had a group who wanted to go in October to Israel, and I, I looked at the Jewish calendar and said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> That's like going to Indianapolis during the 500. Uh, that is not going to work. But even in the hotel rooms or hotel lobby, you know, they got the coffee machine, you just push the button, but there is a tarp over it on the Sabbath, because that's work, and they're not going to permit that to happen at the hotel, even though you might be Gentile, 
And so even back further here, we see this is an issue of the festival, the new moons, the Sabbath. All of these things are saying you must adhere to. Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, states legalism always begins with a divorce between God's revealed will and His gracious, generous character. Grace has gone out the window, right? These are the things you need to do. In fact, there's some Jewish writings in the intertestament period that seem to suggest that the festivals and seasons were looking to the coming of the Messiah. And Paul goes, why would you do these things? In fact, notice that he says in verse 17, these, and the pronoun here is difficult. Is it referring to the immediate Sabbath days? Is it referring to the feast, the new moon, and the Sabbath days? Or is it referring to the entire law? and the, the body of, of the literature that's out there. And I think it's the latter. One commentator states it would be preposterous indeed for those who have been reaped the benefit of Christ's victory. Remember Christ's victory that we saw in, in verse 15? That if you've been identified with Christ, there's the triumph of the cross, it would be preposterous to put themselves voluntarily under the control of the powers which he has conquered Notice in verse 20, it says you've died with Christ to the elemental spirits. There's this idea that, that they need to come back and they need to be, uh, these false teachers saying, you've claimed Christ, but you still are under the elemental authorities, under the powers. And verse 18 says, even the worship of angels. In other words, it, you can't just go straight to God. You've got to move through these elemental spirits or these angels to move to that level. And notice Paul states in verse 17, these, that all of these rules and regulations are only the shadow of the things to come. This idea of shadow is not to be confused with Plato. Remember the cave and the Republic, those of you who maybe have read that. One scholar states it's vastly different because the bottom line is we're dealing with Christ. Think about the Old Testament. And the, the writer of Hebrews talks about all those rules and regulations that were imposed on God's people in the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. In fact, Hebrews 10 says it was a shadow of what we are now looking to. The offerings and sacrifices, that was a once for all in Christ. Yet in the Old Testament, it was done regularly. The priesthood, you had to go through a priest. I mean, as a, a Jew, you could only get so far into the temple complex. But now we have a mediator, a high priest, who takes us all into the Holy of Holies. The king of Israel, there was all these rules and regulations. Now we, we have the king of kings. And so Christ, all of these things which were shadows, is as we have in the reality of Christ. I mean, he's just waxed eloquent, right, in chapter 1 of who this Christ is. And he highlighted later in chapter 2, and now he comes back to this. So why would you go back to all of these rules and regulations when we've been set free in Christ? Right? This is, he's, he's struggling here, because why would you do this? This is, this is false. And secondly, it's not based upon the external, and it's not based upon arrogance. Paul goes for the juggler in verse 18. Look what he says. Let no one who delights in humility, in quotes. In fact, in verse 23, he repeats it. He says, and he adds the word false humility. 
They're walking around like a group of peacocks, and yet they've been nuked. There's no feathers on the back of the bird, right? They think there's something because they're doing all these things for the Lord and, and, and all these regulations. And Paul says, you've missed it. In fact, you're wallowing in arrogance. He, he states there, let no one delight in humility, pass judgment. That term is, is, is used of those who give out a prize. They hold your, de- their des- your destiny in their hands. They sit over it. They lord it over you. He says, don't go there. Why? The idea is that, that God is so holy that we need to approach Him through angels, and they're, they're arguing this, and they're arguing, and, and we are the humble ones because we recognize this. I love what Carr states in an article, one scholar states, claims to spiritual superiority validated by claims to higher religious experience through mystical ascetic piety is what is plaguing the church at Colossae. We do not have to participate in certain practices or beliefs to have access to God, do we? We go straight through Christ. And yet, it's, it's subtle in the church. It's subtle in all of our minds because we have that idea, well, we got to help ourselves in order for God to help us. We got to do X, Y, and Z to make sure He loves us just enough. And we'll get to that in a minute, but the false teachers are playing right into that. They understand there's that human side that we got to have this can-do attitude or we owe something to the Lord for all that He has done. And so you've got this group who are pontificating, who think they have their act together, and they're saying, you need to do these things, and under these false pretenses of, we are so humble. <laughs> oh, you hear that today, don't you? Uh, this intellectual snobbery. We wish you could be like us. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis, The Inner Ring. Do you remember that story? It's one of his most memorable essays, uh, he, he describes the experience and desires of all humanity at various stages of life to be accepted within the inner ring of whatever group matters to us at that time. To feel excluded or out is a miserable feeling. Let's face it, right? We all have those horrible memories from times at school when we weren't picked. Uh, I was seldom picked first, second, or even third on the, the basketball team. <laughs> I'll admit it right? And feeling left out or, or not feeling like you're in the in crowd. And that's what C.S. Lewis says. There's this inner ring that, we all, that people long to be a part of. And he sedates, yet the desire to be the in can make you say things you would not otherwise say or not say or shouldn't say. This desire to be on the inside of whatever group you aspire to it can affect your work, your political affiliation, your relationships in the community, and in the church. And so you have this group that says, you're not in with us. You've not experienced these things. You've not done these things. I wrote three things. In their so-called humility, they removed Christ and their dependence on Him. It's a very dangerous thing, pride, isn't it? It's one of the things God hates, according to Scripture. Because it elevates ourself 
And I said, secondly, in their so-called humility, they claimed they knew more than what God had prescribed for his people. He gave Christ so that we could have access. And yet these false teachers are coming along and saying, well, you know, they're not saying it this way, but in essence, they are, right? And God really doesn't know what he's talking about. You need some angels along the way, a good Raphael or a Gabriel to move to God. Here's the, how we do this. And by the way, angel worship, while not prevalent among Jews in the first century, there are particular sects that we see it being done. So it, it, it was there. We have evidence of it. And then I wrote third, in their so-called humility, they downplayed the work of Christ and the role of the Holy Spirit. They're undermining what Christ accomplished at the cross, right? You don't need to add these things to the mix. And as I stated, isn't that true of anyone who seeks to live their lives as they see fit? I think one of Satan's greatest lies today is the belief that we can live our life as we think is best. Our world plays right into it. Our theology must not be based on what we believe or think, or feel or think, I should say, but what the Word of God teaches, right? I mean, otherwise, you want to know who you worship? Look in the mirror. <laughs> Because you've created an egoistic theology, one that's based solely on you and what you want to cut and paste from the Word of God. And so it's a danger. It was a danger of the false teachers. And, and Paul says to them, look what he states, he is not held fast, verse 19, to the head. Who's the head? Christ. Jesus Christ. Clinging to Christ is an act of submission. It's one of dependence recognizing his authority, his grace, his supremacy, his exclusivity, and the true source of spirituality. The old hymn, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. Around my heart still closely twined those ties which not can sever, for I am his and he is mine forever and ever. Christ is the head. And I love how Paul words it. Look at this text. He says, whom the whole body, it reminds me of Ephesians 4, are being knit together through its ligaments, grows with a growth. And watch this last phrase that is from God. There it is. It's God who is moving and acting. The head is vital. We prayed for Christy with vertigo. <laughs> My wife has had vertigo. It's a horrible thing. Because your head's telling you one thing, but your feet, and it's sending this wrong message to the feet and everywhere else, right? The head is vital. And if you're not connected to the head, then you're not part of the body. And that's what Paul's saying. These false teachers, you add anything to what Christ has accomplished, you're not a follower of Jesus. You can't have coexistence, contrary to the bumper sticker, Right? And, and there is, as we see, far worse things than vertigo here, because if they're not part of the body, if they are not connected, then they are not of Christ. And, you know, being part of the body also entails uh, humility, doesn't it? To be a part of a congregation, to be a part of a community, I mean, there are risks, there's messes, <laughs> there's trust, and there are sacrifices. 
Being united affords us the opportunity to see God work. And that is what the false teachers are missing. And that is what those who are under the head get to see because God is the subject here in that last phrase. It is He that is moving and allowing growth to occur. And that's what I love seeing on Sunday mornings with CBF. We're a new church, but God is moving. And there's been some amazing stories of seeing what God is, is doing and we mentioned the, the building committee. I mean, we're looking at land, and there's a great possibility. Uh, we're looking at some, several other things, you know, and seeing people step up to the plate. False concepts, the idea that it's, it's all external or that we need to be falsely humble doesn't wash it. In fact, the concepts of true spiritual freedom are found in the next three verses, four verses the first of these in your, your notes, you see it's based upon the internal. Notice he says in verse 20, if you have died with Christ, and by the way, the construction is clear, and you have, because it's a first class condition. He says, if you've died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, and you have, why do you submit to them as though you have lived in the world? You're dead with Christ. It's the explosive power of a new affection because we're in Him. And so, this idea that you need to, to go back and wallow into these things, he says in verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all of this is useless. One scholar writes, merely negative rules do not avail for the maintenance and growth of Christian life. For life is not offered merely to our acceptance, it's offered to our acquisition not absences, not indulgence, not mystical immersion. No, and all these, it's the appropriation of Christ in His person and His work that does the Christian life consist. The Christian must live over again the experience of Christ. He must die with Him. He or she must rise with Him. The believer must live with Him in an endless, ever-growing life. And that's what Paul's saying here, isn't he? He says, we've died with Christ. And the irony is you either die with Christ or you die without Him. You die with Christ, you've removed, in dying with Christ, you, there's no effect or authority that sin now has over us. You're dead. But you're not just dead, you're dead in Christ, which is so vital. And the irony is in this call to do, do good works for the purpose of God loving us, the irony is there's no amount of good works that can restore a relationship with God. In fact, Deuteronomy 27 requires that one obey the entire law perfectly in order to earn his favor. The law in the Old Testament was never meant to save. It was meant to show you you needed a Savior. It assumed that you could not do this perfectly that's why when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, your righteousness must exceed those of the religious rulers. Remember the disciples? <laughs> Who could do that? That's the whole point. No one can. No one can. We live to Christ. And that's the point of the law that needed us a Savior who could do all this. And he says, why would you do these things? These, he says in verse 22, are based on human commands and teachings. 
the directions, the doctrinal precepts, they're all vain. Isaiah 29 says you, you, you seek to win God's favor, but you flounder because you're teaching solely the doctrines of men. Food and drink and all of this, legalism has missed the blessings of enjoying God's good, good gifts. And so ironically, what they think is bringing freedom spiritually, they, the false teachers, are only further enshackling them to sin and to all these restrictions and do's. Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with God. Oh, there's obedience, and we'll get to that in a minute. So <laughs> I'm not following into the camp of antinomianism, if uh, you know what that term means. That's not where I'm headed. The flip side is we got to be careful with legalism. Paul's writing to the church, and again, it's not a group of believers he's met, but Epaphras has shared much, and he's gravely concerned, and, and really 2.16 through uh, 23 serves as the heart of this letter, and, and the greatest concern he has is they're going to succumb to these teachings that miss the mark, that we have been set apart from all of this in Christ, and that's his drive. What are the implications on this text. I've given you several in your notes, and I just want to work through these. The first of these is God's grace ceases to be grace if human effort or merit is required. For grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No one's going to get to heaven and say, yeah, <laughs> I'm over here because I gave X amount of dollars to the church, or I volunteered 30 hours a week at the church. None of that's going to cut it. Uh, I remember <laughs> a Sunday school teacher I had one as a kid, used the analogy. She said, you know, it's like making a great pizza and you put dog food just on a little bit of the corner of the pizza. You're not going to eat that pizza. And the point is, we can be spiritual and wonderful. The point is, there's still crud in our life. Before in a holy, almighty God, he looks and it's either all or nothing, and that's the beauty of those who've placed their faith in Christ. Who does he see? 2 Corinthians 5, the righteousness of Christ. And so grace, someone has defined as God riches at Christ's expense. It's a great definition. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. R.C. Sproul writes, listen to this quote, it's dynamite. Perhaps the most difficult task for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and on God's grace alone for our salvation. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace, isn't it? He writes, grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live in a heavenly welfare system. <laughs> I think Sproul is spot on. The danger with these false teachers is an unwillingness to accept solely what Christ has done through grace. We need to do X, Y, and Z, and, and no, 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 no. God's grace ceases to be grace if we add one ounce of any human effort. Secondly, in your notes, we cannot earn God's love. God is pleased with you because He sees you as holy without blemish in Christ. In fact, I will argue His love will never waver. In fact, while you were dead in sin, according to Ephesians, he loved you. He loved you as much as he could love you. 
I, I don't know how many young people I have met in my office, tears flowing down their faces, and they're entrapped. They're entrapped in a performance-driven society, an environment that argues, ah, oh, your grades really matter, and how we judge you is by how well you do at school, or how you performed on the field, or how you played the instrument at the recital. And so they, they live under this weight of parental acceptance or societal acceptance, and often it's, it's also inbred. Consequently, there's this enormous weight that they're not living up to what others expected of them. May that not be. I've told my students it was, an a for a, it was a sin for an A student to get a C, just as it was a sin for a C student to get an A. All God asks is that you utilize the resources He has given for His glory. God is pleased with you because He sees us holy without blemish in Christ. There's, you realize we, we only have an audience of one. It's God. Who cares what Aunt Betsy thinks? <laughs> right? You stand before the Lord, and, and Aunt Betsy isn't going to be standing by the Bema seat going, you know what? Johnny here had a real problem last week. You know, that, that's not going to happen. So we need to ask even ourselves, is this really an issue in our lives? Well, let me ask you, do you tithe or have devotions because you want to ensure God's blessing for the day? Or do you have a bad day and you think, ah, oh, I didn't pray enough this morning? See how insepid it is? It's so subtle. Is motivation, I said, our motivation and a loving response to the abundant grace of God has already been manifested in Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, it's the love of God which drives us. He loves you when you were dead in sin. He loves you now. He gave you His Son. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, what He sees is His Son. Right? Oops, as I trip over this. Dearest. Right? He loves us as much as He could possibly love us. And so, third point. I'm starting to preach more. Let's move on. Legalism fails to recognize the need for contentment, humility, and watch this, gratitude. The sin goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Discontentment, arrogance, ingratitude, they are three major landmines that can under, destroy, decimate the believer. Careful. It's the problem with the false teachers. Oh, look at us. We are so humble. And this is the way you should do it, right? We'll teach you how to be grateful. And you can't be content just in Christ. We need to add to these things. Be very careful. Fourth, the proof of our love for God is through obedience. So here's the balance, right? We obey not because we seek to be blessed, but because we are already blessed. Jesus said, how will you know if you're my disciples? By keeping my commandments. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace. If you're struggling with legalism, there's two great books to read. One is by Chuck Swindoll and... Uh, um, oh goodness, uh, grace awakening. The second is Jerry Bridges, Transforming Grace. Listen to what Bridges says. Our good works are not truly good unless they are motivated by a love for God and a desire to glorify Him. 
A works-oriented motivation is essentially self-serving. It's prompted more by what we think we can gain or lose from God than by a grateful response to the grace He has already given us through Jesus Christ. The church at Colossae do not were in danger of coming, succumbing to these false teachers who want to strip that all away. They want to downplay the love of God and our obedience to it. Be careful. And two more principles as we look at this text. Our personal rules and preferences should not be elevated to the level of God's commands. Be very careful, right? Think about 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not self-serving, resentful. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Legalism sets in and goes, no, 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 no. I think, you know, I really question your motives here. You need to do this and this. It's good to have personal fences. There's no doubt about that. And that's going to vary from each believer. For some, walking anywhere near a magazine rack at the store is verboten. For some, that computer has got to be faced into the family room so everyone can see you're not looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. I mean, that's going to vary from each person. Perhaps it's having an ethical accountant who comes behind your tax reports. Uh, You know, whatever that might be, but careful. The four spiritual laws is that God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life, right? It's what God has for us. And so be very careful here. Our personal rules and preferences should not be elevated to the level of God's commands. And finally, we do not need to be fearful of enjoying our freedoms in Christ for fear of what others might think. I heard the story of a missionary that was afraid about eating peanut butter because they were lacerated by other missionaries who said, that's a rare commodity here and you shouldn't have it if you're truly spiritual. Well, I think God loves peanut butter. So uh, we need to be careful. We need to, God has, this old idea of do not touch this, not do not eat this, tell you what, I'm glad I'm no no longer under the law. I love calamari, right? God has given us freedoms. And again, are we seeking man's approval or God's? We're not bull in a china shop. We walk in love. We walk in grace. At the same time, we cannot let others lord over what God has given us freedom because of Christ. We serve an audience, an audience of only one Christ. Take some time this week You've got a laundry list here of, of uh, implications. I, I challenge you to pray through this. Do a, a personal inventory. Why are you having devotions on every week, day of the week? Maybe you're reading through the Bible. Why, why, are you do, why are you memorizing Scripture? Why do you pray? Why do you come to church? Is it so you're checking off the list for God's approval? Or is it because you love Him dearly? Furthermore, remember... Our Lord loves us as much as He could love us. He's invested much. He can be disappointed with sin in our life, but the love He has will not waver, right? And for some of you in the room, this is a really hard concept because this is not your upbringing. It's not how you could relate. Cling to the cross. Look what Christ has done. Read Ephesians 1. Hang that on your beak this week. And look at how God has delighted in showering His grace on you. And be careful that we don't become like the church at Colossae that lacked grace and stressed do's and don'ts, right? 
the worship team would come and close us in song. They do. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. We don't deserve it. And that's the hardest part because we want to do something to help help you along or demonstrate we, we, we truly are uh, grateful. And, and you have stated, what does that entail? Simply be obedient to love you. Father, may we be known as a people of grace. In Jesus' name.